Welcome to We Are Chafee Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness, community, and well-being based in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today I'm talking with Joe Parkin. Now, I'm going to get to the descriptors of who Joe is in a moment. But first, I'm just going to say that we've got a lot going on with this conversation. And I think it's an amazing one because Joe is a guy with a lot of history, a lot of diverse and extraordinary experiences and stories. There were so many threads to pull with him. And I think we did a pretty good job of doing the thing, of having the conversation while also knowing that he's humbly sitting on so many stories that we still didn't touch. So here we are, some descriptors and highlights about Joe. I'm going to somewhat bullet point these, just for efficiency's sake. Joe notably was a pioneering American professional cyclist in Europe in the 80s and 90s. He also has been a professional and or highly competitive BMX, mountain bike, and motorcycle racer. He's been an aerobatic pilot. He spent several years as a highly accomplished long-range rifle shooter. He's been on several tours with the rock band of the actress Juliette Lewis. He's published two books and, quote, accidentally fell into a period as a magazine editor and writer. And just as accidentally, though really I think that's just his humility talking, he spent most of a decade with an Italian cycling apparel company as a clothing designer, among other things. He reads books in Flemish to stay in touch with his formative years as a cyclist in Belgium and as a Liège waffle connoisseur. He says he's a bartender now, though again, humility. He owns the bar. He has years of bike shop ownership too. We actually manage to dip into almost all of those subject areas in this conversation. Along the way, I get Joe's inside perspective on the entrenched history of doping in the sport of cycling and the nuances of race fixing and his levels of participation in both. We even talk a little about aerodynamics and some other good things too, but I've said enough for now and I think that you will find that Joe is candid and easy with his story and that we've got another great one here. So here he is, Joe Parkin. Welcome to the show, Joe. I am excited to talk with you. Um, from what little hints of things I know from your story, I'm just, I, this is going to be great. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, given so many different aspects of your story to get into, obviously you're a former pro cyclist, and I've read your book, A Dog in a Hat, which was your first book, and that came out in 2008, I believe, at least in the edition that I was holding. And so a lot has happened since then, I think, too. I'm going to get into some of the cycling stuff with you, but before we do that, I want to get into things that I don't know so much about because you might have just briefly mentioned it in your book, and that stoked so many questions for me. I'm like, I want a book on that. So let's go to the line, the idea that you shared in that writing at the time that said, you know, you've crashed bicycles, of course, you were racing, and other vehicles, and an airplane. You've crashed an airplane? Yeah, I crashed an airplane. It's, uh, you know, if it was a car, we would kind of call it a fender bender. But since it's, uh, since it's an airplane, it's sort of, uh, you know, catastrophic, right? The FAA doesn't have a sense of humor at all. <laughs> um, and so you really, you really have to kind of uh, look, look at it with that sort of perspective. But, yeah, I, I, 
I landed, um, I landed on a high wind situation and kind of, it was my fault, messed up. Um, you were the pilot. I was the pilot. And I kind of, I kind of took the airplane off. It, it was a small aerobatic plane and, and, um, really wasn't designed for the, the crosswind situation that I was trying to land it in. And, and ultimately I just drove it off the, the runway, um, drove it through some grass and crashed into a sign. And, um, again, it would, it, if it was a car, it would have been a fender bender. It would have cost a few thousand dollars. But since it's an airplane, a completely different story, and and the feds had to be involved. So yeah. Well, I mean, when we're talking about a fender bender with an airplane, you're talking about crashing into a planet, even when it's gentle, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. I mean, it, it was more embarrassing than than anything else, to be honest with you. But it. But uh, I mean, you know, you're crash landing an airplane. You know, that usually doesn't turn out that well. So yeah. <laughs> well, is it the way that it turned out as what you're calling a fender bender? I mean, was that something that you could predict as you were trying to do it? Or I'm, I'm thinking from what you're saying, it was unpredictable. I mean, how could you know it was going to turn out safe versus flip or whatever else might have happened with the wrong gust of wind? Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that basically I, um, you know, when it was a tower controlled airport, so I was talking to air traffic controllers um, it was a, um, it was a heavily, heavily corporate jet trafficked airport, um, with east west runways and a north south runway. And the, and the wind was coming out of the south. I mean, dead out of the south at about 20, it was like 20, 22 knots, um, gusting to 30 and beyond. And, you know, I really should have, they, they cleared me to land on, on the east-west runways, and I really should have asked to land on the north-south because that would have been a no-brainer, you know, it would have been really, really easy, but I thought, well, you know, it's good practice, you know, what, what doesn't kill us, and, uh, <laughs> right. um, but yeah, I, I just, I, I screwed up, and I, and I, I knew that it was going to be, you know, at, at the minute that I touched the ground, I knew that something was going to go south, but I just, um, you know, I, I didn't see it as being anything catastrophic. I didn't, I didn't see flames. I didn't, you know, I wasn't reliving all the aspects of my life. So <laughs> everything was, everything was fine. It just was a big embarrassment. Gotcha. So another question I have out of curiosity, it kind of comes from that same almost random question type thing was from an article that I read you gave. I mean, I don't know how many years ago this was, and it was almost in passing. They made reference to you having toured, I guess, with a band Mm -hmm. with Juliette Lewis, the uh -huh. actress, her band. Yeah, yeah. And it, and again, I'm like, wait, wait what? <laughs> we didn't get into that. So that's true. That is true, yeah. What does that mean? Are you a musician? Were you playing in her band? Were you dating her? I mean, what, what were the circumstances here? Yeah, so I, you know, I had, my cycling career was over. I had been in, you know, working in, still in cycling, but, uh, you know, for a clothing manufacturer, um, things were a little bit weird in my life at the time. And my youngest brother, Jay has a, well, he, he owned or co-owned a record company, in, um, in Hollywood and he half a dozen bands or something like that on, on the label. Um, and Juliet Lewis's band, Juliet Malik's, they were on that label. Um, anyway, called him out of the clear blue and said, Hey Jay, I'm having a, a rough go of it right now. I, I really need a, like a mental vacation. 
could I go tour with one of your bands, sell merch, load in, load out, do whatever. I don't really care. You don't have to pay me, you know, none of that. I just, I just want a mental vacation. And so, you know, without skipping a beat, he's just like, yeah, we're getting ready for a Juliet and Licks tour. You know, you can come and join us and sell t-shirts. Right. And, um, so I ended up going on several tours with them, you know, um, and it was awesome. I mean, it was truly awesome. I would, I would there's often times where I wished I had learned how to play the guitar instead of ride a bike. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was it was really fun. That sounds incredible. I've, I guess, I've always been curious about touring with a band in any capacity. I mean, I've never been even a music fan to the point of I'm going to follow somebody all over the country or you know whatever that would be, like a Deadhead or something. You know, so I guess I'm really curious about a lot of aspects of that, but. We'll keep it moving a little bit. I do, of course, want to talk with you about cycling. I'd have to say that, I mean, I'm not, I can't even call myself a casual fan of cycling because it's just not a sport that was ever put in front of me. It's not something I was around. And, you know, Greg LeMond as a kid, then you have the whole Lance, what would become a saga with Tour de France and all these sorts of things. You know, that drew my attention to paying attention to that particular race. But we're talking about in the 80s when you're coming up and at 19 decide you're going to go to Belgium and really, what, test yourself where it's going to be one of the tougher places to come up and to compete and get better and become a pro cyclist. What? There's so many questions off that can branch off of this. There's the part where your dad wanted you to go to a military academy. I don't know how you buck that, first of all. How do you say to a dad who's a Marine who has been a drill instructor. No, no, no. I'm not going to follow your instructions. I'm going to go do my own thing across the world, pedaling a bike, which is a sport I assume they didn't understand, your parents. Yeah, it, it was um, it, it was an interesting progression. You know, I, I, I have always been... Um, my, my very first memory of being alive is being at... I, to be honest, I don't remember the racetrack, but it, but it was a NASCAR car race, you know, oval in somewhere in North Carolina. And I was probably four years old, you know, four okay. and a half years old. And my dad worked for Pontiac Motor Division um, at the time. He was, uh, um, you know, my parents are from Michigan, you know, that's what you do. Um, you go to work for one of the car companies, right? And, and he... Um, I mean, that's, that's what I remember. And I've always had a passion for speed, um, things with wheels. Um, and yeah, I did the, my introduction to, to cycling was really weird because I kind of, maybe not weird, but just not direct. I, um, I played baseball. I wanted to be the next Johnny bench. I wanted to be a great, you know, major league baseball catcher, but you look at me, I'm, not the build for that necessarily. And, and, um, I mean, I, I thought I was a, I thought I was a good baseball player, but once I got into kind of into junior high and high school, the coaches were always looking at me going, yeah, kid, you're not going to, you're too skinny. You're too small. You won't have the arm, you know, all this kind of stuff. And my hitting wasn't that awesome. So, um, at a certain point, my parents kind of gave me a choice. You know, like you can't be a bum this fall going into your, uh, you know, sophomore year of high school or whatever. It was June, uh, freshman year of high school. You can't be a bum. You've got to, you got to go do something. Um, they give me a choice. You can run cross country or, 
uh, play soccer. And I'm a garbage soccer player, so <laughs> I thought I would give cross country a try. Um, I turns out I can't run to save myself either. <laughs> uh, it's a good thing I'm not a criminal because I I'd never get away from the cops. Anyway, um, but I did run cross country, and then you know, kind of started looking at some things to keep myself in shape and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'd always liked riding bikes. I always liked riding motorcycles, race BMX a little bit as a kid. Um, and so I bought a bicycle, you know, with a pittance of savings that I had and, um, started riding, riding it. Um, kind of at the same time I was working, for the school newspaper because, I, you know, as you mentioned that my dad had this goal of me going to the Naval Academy. And, um, and so I was collecting all those extracurricular things. Um, I interviewed this student in my school that, um, he raced bikes. The whole thing was fascinating to me. I'm, I'm still that generation that was, I was a kid when the, you know, film Breaking Away came out. Okay, so, yeah. so, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that was, those kinds of things were, you know, still kind of fascinating to me. And, um, anyway, interviewed the, 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 the kid wrote a story. Um, and at the same time he goes, Hey, there's, I'd go do this, you know, individual time trial race, you know, up North of Minneapolis. Um, every, I can't remember if it was a Tuesday or Thursday, something like that. And, um, you should come along, come check it out. Well, I ended up winning the thing. So, um, you know, that, that was the light switch. And it's like, well, I actually, I, I suck at running. I'm too, <laughs> I'm too skinny to play baseball. Um, here's a thing that, that is kind of right up my alley. So I kind of just dove in from that point. I like these stories where people happen into their thing that just so clearly is their thing mm -hmm. because I, I don't know that I have felt the same about anything in my life. Because, I mean, I've, I've talked about on this podcast my interest in trail running and some things like that with people, but there's no way I'm going to win anything. I'm mid-pack at best out there. So to know in your first race that you're going to be at the top of the podium, assuming there was a podium, but you won. <laughs> I don't know. That, that's amazing to have that be you know a spark in your life that's just like, this is the direction I'm going. And at 19, that took you to Belgium, all right? Not the Naval Academy not to college or to whatever your parents thought should have been an alternative that was acceptable. We're now talking about what, 30, 35, 35 years ago. Yeah. Does that feel like a lifetime ago to you? Is that something you ever reflect on? Are you that sort of reflective sentimental type person? Or is that just like, man, that was a different guy, a different life? You know, I think it's strange to me because I remember, I remember everything like it was just yesterday. I, you know, I know that sounds kind of cliche and everything like that, but I, but I can re remember that era of my life so clearly, you know, with such level of detail. Um, I mean, it, it really was my thing. You know, I, I, I loved it absolutely wholeheartedly, completely. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I can look at the years, you know, I can look at the, the I can do the math and go, holy shit, that was, that was forever ago. <laughs> But at the same time, it, it really does, you know, it, it just blends into my, my everyday life. It's just that that's just what I am, what it was, I guess. Yeah. So I've mentioned that your dad was 
was a Marine. Mm-hmm. You said then when you were pretty young that he was working um, for the auto industry. Mm-hmm. What was that Marine Corps connection for him? Was So it wasn't a career there? It was... No, he was, he was um, you know, my, my dad grew up, you know, um, his parents were just, they were white trash, you know, and, and he had a, he was very fortunate to have had a mentor, you know, as in the form of a, um, a high school teacher, I, I believe. And that guy basically, I mean, I don't know the complete story. My dad was a slightly tight lipped, you know, that kind of old school, you know, stiff, stiff upper lip and everything. But he, um, whoever the mentor was kind of, kind of pointed to him in a direction of like, Hey kid, go do something different for a little while. And, um, you know, get out of this, this, um, this sort of, you know, upbringing that you have. I mean, his, his parents were raging alcoholics and, and, um, Mm. fought with each other and not particularly intelligent or, or curious or creative or anything else. You know, they just, they just, I don't know. I didn't, I, they were my grandparents, so I have to kind of care for them that way, but they not people I really ever wanted to be around that much. Um, and he escaped that life and he went to the Marine Corps. Um, he was built for that. He loved it. Um, you know, until the day he, my, my dad, you know, had early onset Alzheimer's and, and ultimately died complications of that, um, which is typically is pneumonia, you know, because they don't, they forget how to swallow and things like that. But he, um, you know, he stood like a Marine Corps drill instructor until the day he could hardly stand anymore. You know, he had that, that stance. It was very, you know, if he had not gotten out of the Marine Corps, I might not be here. But at the same time, had he stayed in the Marine Corps, I think he would have been a much happier human being. Um, Was he in Vietnam or what was his No, he was, he was, Technically, he 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 is a Korean War vet, okay. even though he saw no time in Korea. Okay, um, and then he he was he he got out of the Marine Corps. He went to college, and he wanted to go back in the Marine Corps. And there's this is a weird long story based on some you know he he had um, corrected vision and he had asthma. And when he right. enlisted originally, the recruiter was like. You can't hide your eyes, but you can hide your asthma. When he went to re-enlist with the hopes of going to OCS, he wrote down that he had asthma, and that recruiter had higher standards yep. or something. Yep. Like I went that, through that so. myself going into the Army. Actually, yeah. I had a recruiter who would not put me in because of asthma, but his superior called me up. He just plain wanted the quota. He wanted somebody else to put in. Yeah. He said, oh, I'll put you in. Yeah. So the other guy was just sort of, turning his back to it and, and right, right. holding his, his principles. Um, well, the reason I ask, uh, you know, when you say you might not be here had he stayed in, was, you know, well, was he a war, um, you know, combat service sort of veteran, you know, with that experience? Or why do you think that? Why do you think had he stayed in, you might not have come to be? Oh, I just think he would have been, um, you know, he. I, I think had he gone had he stayed in, you know, had he just re-upped his enlistment and then, you know, because at that period of time, you didn't have to have a college education to go to OCS and his superiors were trying to get him to go to OCS. And, and, uh, anyway, he, I just, you know, I think that he would have, 
different path wouldn't have met my mom you know the, right, the, sure. i mean they knew each other before he went into the service but you know he they probably wouldn't have got married gotcha um, just a different life course yeah, which yeah, of I course changes so. everything mm-hmm. well okay so ocs officer candidate school he wanted you to go to the naval academy so mm-hmm. of course then you would have come out as an officer in the navy or mm-hmm. potentially marines i yep. suppose since the marines, marines come under the, the, <laughs> the naval uh department but you didn't and so you go off and decide you're going to give a shot at becoming a pro cyclist. And then, of course, I mean, you succeed and you're there for several years. Ultimately, did that affect the relationship that you had with your dad in particular because of what he had wanted for you? Or did he come around and support that? And that is the great sadness, really. Uh, he he His brain was gone by the time that we would have been able to reconcile. I don't think there was much to reconcile. I, I think that, you know, my dad was getting sick when I went to Belgium. You know, his, his early onset Alzheimer's, and I'm no doctor scientist by any stretch, but um, it seems to progress quite a bit quicker the younger that it begins to develop. And he was in his 40s, early, 40s when mm-hmm. it happened. Yep. Okay, wow. wow. Um, we, we, you know, looking back in hindsight, we see the signs of it when he was really in his early 40s. Um, certainly, but you know, by mid-40s, he was showing signs. By 50, he was gone. He was, I mean, he was still there, but he he, he couldn't work anymore. He couldn't, um, my dad had an uncanny knack of direction, you know, sense of direction. And then suddenly he was getting lost coming home from work or going to work or, you know, going to the store and back, those kinds of things. And yeah, he was he was basically gone, you know, in his, in his early 50s. He died when he was 60, 60 or thereabouts. He, um... That was a long time then to live with the the condition, right? It it was, and and um, yeah, it it was hard. It was hard on my mom, hard on my brothers. Um, I was away, you know, so I didn't I didn't experience as much as they did. Did anybody um, resent you for that because you sort of escaped the the daily or or whatever you know responsibility I, that might have come to you in that? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, I think everybody, you know, the family was just kind of, everybody was going through it in their own way. Right. And so he, yeah. He only got to see me race one time in Europe, you know, and I like to believe that there was a, a, you know, faint glimmer of understanding there, but he, you know, we, we, we never talked about it. You know, we never, there was never, uh, never got to the point where it was like, oh, I'm, you know, proud of what you've done. And perhaps he told other people that. I mean, he did have a picture of me in my full cycling regalia hanging in his office before he, you know, ultimately got an early medical retirement from General Motors. But but we never talked about it, you know, okay. and, and most of that was he couldn't really. So Right. Okay. Well, about the cycling, you know, your your writing has been really open about the the drugs, the doping mm-hmm. and things involved. Of course, we know that I mentioned Lance Armstrong and it's it's maybe unfair to just single out his name, but if anybody's going to recognize any non fan of cycling is going to recognize a name, that's the one they're going to recognize. He was not the first by any stretch to get involved in this. It's been prevalent in the sport. And in reading your writing on on this, it just blows me away how obvious and open with each other, with other cyclists people are. It's almost like it's just a given, and it's also illegal mm-hmm. and being, at least to whatever extent, at least theoretically tested for and tried to weed out. 
I, I don't I don't even know my question at this moment other than how I, I don't understand I've never understood as somebody who's not in the sport how it's so prevalent and everybody just accepts sure most people are doping and if you're not probably is just assumed that you are because well everybody's doping it's um I mean I, I think <clears throat> I've tried to explain this to many 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 different people because <laughs> because to me it's um you know it, it it's part of the sport and if you you want to think that the sport is you know completely pure you might want to pick a different sport to pay attention to because um in my mind anyway you you can you can appreciate it for for what it is you appreciate the athleticism and if you're hung up on the fact that some of if not most of the cyclists throughout the history of the sport have been chemically altered you're just gonna you're just gonna be banging your head against the wall in frustration you know i think it's important to understand that it's a european sport it's not an american sport It, it was interestingly enough it was in the early days, I mean, Madison Square Garden in New York. Madison Square Garden was built for cycling. Hmm. That was its original purpose. It for was, an indoor track. It was an indoor velodrome. Mm. And in the, you know, the, the early after the turn of the, the 20th century, you know, the teens and 20s, the number one sport in the United States was, for spectatorship, was velodrome racing cycling on a on a board track all of the fancy people came to madison square garden it was you know the it event always uh for 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 sports and at that time it was very well known i mean you have to almost think about professional cycling as if it were boxing you know i mean there's nobody that looks at boxers and go oh these these people are the you know the the elite you know um minds of science and technology and and philosophy and things like that now these are the you know these are the hard scrabble you know um people who who might i mean if you look you think about boxing as like this is the way out of you know poverty or um um you know family po- po- generational poverty um and cycling was very much the same in Europe at the time um you know in its in its sort of early days it wasn't the thing that the gentleman did it was I'm I read uh I I kind of like to read Flemish books because it keeps my brain speaking Flemish a little bit at least and um there's a very famous Belgian cyclist who is sort of the mm, he's sort of the epitome of this concept of Flandrian, which is the the Flemish hard guy, you know, kind of athlete. Um, his name is Brick Schulte, and was he he's dead now. But I read this book about him, and and it really talks about how when he was getting interesting in cycling, his parents didn't want him to be a cyclist because those were the you know, th- those were kind of the scumbags of society. You know, those were the, um, you know, they, they were, they were not, you know, the this notion of pure sports, you know, fair play and all that kind of stuff. It was a living, and that's all it was. Um, but it was fun to watch 
so so again i'd go back to that boxing analogy you know it's just um it it is it was the idea was that it was watching people brutalize each other you know in this case it was with a bicycle it wasn't with a it wasn't with a um you know with fists right so anyway i mean the, the early days the the really early days of cycling i mean if you look at the very first tour de france the the riders handbook said the organization of the tour de france will not be providing doping products to the cyclists that you have to provide those on your own. <laughs> okay. um, so it's just, it's been so much a part of the professional sport for so long that it, it's almost just, it, it's, it's almost just a given, you know, and, and people hate that I, that I dismiss it like that, but it's really what it is. It's really traditionally what it has been. Now, back when the sport became more global, um, which I relate directly to when the 7-Eleven cycling team from the United States of America went and raced bikes in Europe and ultimately did the Tour of Italy and then the Tour de France. They brought with them a more educated mindset, a more pure sports mindset, and that was the kickoff of trying to sort of clean up the sport. Um, the problem with any thing like that is that you... Uh, and I'm not dismissing this notion of it would wouldn't it be cool if everybody was clean and pure. I'm just saying once you begin to build a lot of rules and a lot of bureaucracy into keeping the sport clean, then you be you then you start having a class divide, right? And the sport maybe that maybe it requires a little bit of background here, but like people love to say, well, Lance Armstrong. Oh, he was just doing what everybody else was doing, right? Um, kind of, not really. And that's where this class warfare, class divide starts to come in. Um, in the early days of the sport, the only thing that you needed, and early days even up into my you know era in the 80s and early 90s, all you needed to have to be on a doping program was a doctor with a you know, as, as William S. Burroughs would say, you know, a croaker with a good writing arm, you know, you, you had to have a doctor who was willing to write your prescription for a banned substance. That's and all you had to have. And then it was okay? It, then it was permitted? No, it wasn't permitted, okay. but that's all you had to have to, kind of, to kind of a access and to be able to be on the, you know, quote unquote, level playing field. Once you get into the Lance Armstrong era, the, the doping controls become so much more sophisticated that they just you have to have a more sophisticated doctor to be able to help you on to a doping pr program that's going to allow you to kind of skate under the the doping control without being tested you know without testing positive okay uh, essentially so you you have described yourself as a conscientious objector related to doping did you to to a great extent yeah yeah um, because you, you have candidly described at least some what I would look at as minimal or even accidental or incidental experiences in which you might have just been given something and not known. But I'm just curious then, how do you make that choice? You obviously, it sounds like, embraced and still maintain this idea that if you're going to be part of this sport, you're going to have to accept that it's so prevalent, it's historically rooted in this sport— and if you're going to go clean, that's what you're competing against. And, you know, I, there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of, 
um, cyclists over the years have kind of come out and said, well, I would have been, you know, I could have been a contender, but I, sure. you know, but I'm not, I'm not willing to do the, do the, do all of the stuff. In my case, it was a slight, slightly different. I don't come across, I'm not, you know, some Puritan notion of, of clean sport. To me, honestly, you know, I, I skirted the line here and there for sure, you know, but to me, the biggest thing was, I was one of the first Americans to go do this, right? In um, Europe, you mean? Yeah, in Europe. There were, there were, you know, guys that came along before me. Obviously, there's a lot of people that have come after me. You know, there was Greg LeMond that was before me, and Jonathan Boyer, and George Mount, and all these names, Mike Neal, all these people that went over and raced in Europe. I was just... The, the, I guess the difference between me or um, take Greg LeMond out of the equation because he already had some nor- notoriety, but these other guys that were kind of sort of on my same level, maybe a little bit better, um, maybe not, I don't know. There was less, there wasn't any media to, to speak of when I was racing. You know, there was there was no social media. There was no internet. That, For sure, yeah. But there was still, um, the sport was growing enough in the United States on the fringes where there was still enough media. I didn't want to be the first guy to test positive for for drugs. I, I mean, it kind of boils down to that. The there first was, American, yeah, to I, make to make news in America that you went to Europe and you became what many Americans then would say was a cheater, right, and right. a disgrace or yep. a whatever. Yeah, and that was that was it. That was, you know, that was kind of my my limit. I, um, you know, I I did several things that were on banned substance lists, um, and you know. Sometimes it was, you know, like there's there's in the book you, you kind of mentioned there's parts where you know I I was I was dosed you know I was somebody slipped me something and and there was a little bit of a wink wink nod nod you know of that um, it's not like you know again I was standing back with some puritanical robes on going you know no clean only but um but I definitely tried to stay away from a lot of stuff just just because I I don't want to have that conversation with my parents, you know? I don't want to have that conversation with friends. I didn't want to be that guy that was the, you know, the first American cyclist to get popped for for, for doping. And, and not that it would have made me really all that different. It, it was just, I didn't want to be that guy, so. There's, there's one other aspect of this that you have written about that just totally stunned me when we're talking about the purity of competition. Okay. The doping thing. Okay. We align that a little bit with cycling. It is in that history. It's so interwoven, but the idea of selling or buying races from the lead group in the remaining miles and somebody is saying, Hey, I want to buy this win and offering to pay the riders around them who also would be in contention then to win that, that just blows my mind because that to me, um, not to cast moral judgment in this moment with you right now, it's more of a curiosity. I did not know such a thing would exist. I mean, that's essentially race or competition fixing in yep. my mind. Yeah. I, how does that also then become just a, a normal way to conduct this competition, this sport? And and I think there's, you know, not, um, you know, I have my own justifications. For, I, I made a lot of money doing that. So... <laughs> Like I don't, I don't really, um, you know, and and I completely would understand if people would put would say, oh, well, that's just horrible. You're a total scumbag. Like, 
I get that. I go back to when I <clears throat> when I went over to Belgium. I mean, I, when I when I got there, it was like I stepped off the plane and was like, "All right, I am going to be a Belgian professional cyclist." You know, even though I've got an American passport and fly an American flag, I am going to be in a Belgian professional cyclist. I'm going to do it exactly the way they they do it up to a certain point. Like I didn't, you know, <clears throat> again, the drug thing scared me to a great extent, but suddenly, you know, like it was my very first, my very first race that I did in Belgium, the guy tried to buy the race from me. You know, we were, we, it was two of us, uh, alone breakaway. One of the two of us was going to win. We had a clear gap on third place and he offered to give me money to, for the race. I didn't really understand what it meant at the time. So I told him no, you know, and we, we sprinted out and he, he beat me. I was kind of coming apart at the, at the time we were going to sprint, but it's, you know, again, it goes back to that kind of pro mentality versus, versus the amateur gentleman, you know, sort of sports mentality in cycling. It works a little bit different than like, let's say if, 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 you know, we're in a golf tournament and you want to win the tournament and you tell me to flub something, you know, or, you know, you're going to pay me off. Well, I'm clearly going to, I mean, it's really, cut, this is really, you know, cutting, splitting hairs here, but, it, but baseball, you have to throw the game, right? Golf, you would have to throw the game. If you're boxing, you would have to take a dot, take a fall, right? In cycling, it's a tiny bit different. What you're doing when you buy the race from other rider, another rider or riders, typically you're not asking those other riders to not try. You're not asking them to not sprint for the win. You're asking for them to help you, you know, in the share of the work, you know, cycling is big on drafting, just like NASCAR, you know, you need, you need, even if it's your mortal enemy, you have to come up with some sort of an agreement. So you're both working together. Uh, If you're not working together with the other riders in your breakaway or, or whatever it is, you're going to get caught typically you're, and and neither one of you is going to win. So a lot of times it's just a, you know, kind of a cost benefit analysis equation in your head where you, you know, there's, okay, it's me and you, and I know I'm faster than you in a sprint. will you know, I will pay you to not quit helping me get to the finish line. Gotcha. Essentially. Um, it's still collusion. It's still cheating, but it, but it's, it's a little bit different than just going, well, I just won't try anymore, you know? That does give me a little bit different take on it, mm-hmm. for sure. Because then I also wondered in that circumstance, let's say someone pays off the five riders around them mm-hmm. or or makes those offers, the negotiations happen, all while riding, <laughs> by the way. Everyone still is doing what they're doing. And then what if that person doesn't win? You know, what if somebody else does? Or what if, like, just the ways that it can go against the agreements Mm -hmm. and well, does that mean nobody gets paid or, or whatever those things are? Like it just starts spinning all these sorts of things. And now coming to mind is like, well, what did you not write about? What, what have I still not learned about in this (laughs) sport? There's, I'm sure that there's, there's a lot more, um, to it. And it is, it feels like such an obscure thing that's tough to grasp as an American, because, you know, it's, it's not the NFL, it's not NBA, it's not baseball, it's not all these things that have this history with us um, so much more that even as fans, it, it, those are a lot easier to grasp. The way cycling functions, like you were just saying, the physics of drafting, 
I'm not a NASCAR fan either. I might get the gist of the physics, but it still is hard for me to totally get because it's an invisible thing when you're talking about the airstreams and aerodynamics. And when you have two cycles or two cars close to each other, the way that affects things and helps both cars, it's, it's a whole thing for me that I, I don't know more than what I just was able to rattle off, I think, somewhat successfully without stumbling too much. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's basically that. There's, you know, and the, the NASCAR dy- dynamic is massively different because we're talking about, you know, as, as opposed to going between 20 and 50 miles an hour, they're going, you know, 200 miles an hour thereabouts, right? So, so the, the, the aerodynamics and the physics are massively different. But, the, you know, in cycling, you start to derive a draft benefit at, I can't remember the number right now, it's, it's around 12 miles an hour, 12 to 15 miles an hour. So a rider who is, you know, in the slipstream of another rider, I mean, the easiest way to think of it is, you know, if one bicycle is behind another bicycle, the the rider in front is doing 100% of the work just like that rider would do if they were, you know, riding by themselves, right? Um, when you put a, another rider behind them, then it's that the rider in the second position is doing only 60% of the work hmm. that the first rider is doing. So um, <clears throat> done correctly, you know, if you're doing it as a team or in the idea that, you know, the two people that aren't on the same team want to get to the line together, you are you're sharing the work then. So one rider takes a turn at the front, then you switch off and another t- rider. And it's most of that is sort of, you know, nonverbal. You just kind of know what you're going to do. Where it gets really fascinating to me anyway is sidewind. And that's the, you know, that's the beauty of the Northern European countries. Um, small roads, lots of wind, inclement weather, Belgium, let's face it, is it's not Colorado. There are no 14ers in in Belgium. You know, it's a flat country for all intents and purposes. But it's like the wind and the ability to race in sidewind. That is the mountains for a flatlander. You know, um, they separate. You know, the the riders who are truly skilled, talented, fit, and strong you know, that that's the benefit, you know, it's very easy for an American who've never seen the sport before to turn on the tour de France when they're in the big mountains. Well, it's easy to understand that that person is winning today. Um, because look at, they are riding faster than everyone else for the flatlanders, you know, for the Belgium, Holland, um, Northern France, that kind of stuff that the sidewind racing, the draft changes, um, when you're drafting, when you're side drafting, as they talk about in NASCAR now, it, 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 side drafting in NASCAR is totally different than side drafting on a bicycle, but essentially there is a massive, uh, energy savings when you're riding sort of side by side in a staggered formation that called an echelon. Um, it's the fastest that you can go on a bike without going downhill. Um, and it's because once you get into that side draft situation, the, you're, you're not doing 60% of the work anymore. If you're in the, if you're behind, you're doing more like, you know, I don't know the exact number, but it feels more like 10% of the work. Like you're, you're basically being sucked along. Hmm. Um, and then when you 
add your own punch at the front and then swing back and get back in the rotation. I mean, an, an echelon, a sidewind, you know, formation can, I mean, it's just the fastest that you can go, really. This is going to be interesting knowledge for me to have just this little bit when I watch the Tour de France or something the next time. The science of things is fascinating to me, and yet it's also something that is fairly elusive. I struggle with, even for me in the sports that I do, whether that's running or that's whatever, and just trying to balance nutrition and fueling and hydration and just all the things, that that's tougher for me to grasp. Like we can really get into the intellect of, you know, with this. It's a complicated sport. It looks like nothing. I mean, I'll, I'll admit, like if you turn on the Tour de France, you don't know any of the riders, you don't know what you're watching, you don't know what stages, and you don't care, right? You look at it and what you see is a bunch of skinny guys on bicycles wearing Lycra. Um, <laughs> and they might not appear to be going very fast, you know? It might appear to be nothing at all. And, you know, I'll take it back to NASCAR. If you like NASCAR, if you watch NASCAR, if you know what's going on, if you know the terminology, you know the drivers and you know their talents and talents and, you know, strengths, weaknesses, all that kind of stuff, you see a whole lot more in the race than than just a bunch of colorful cars going around in circles. It's the same thing with cycling. It's, it's very complex. You know, it, it's not brain surgery, but it's a very complex sport. And it's, um, there's a lot to it and it's very nuanced, you know, people love to argue with me about the Tour de France. I don't, I, I watch the Tour de France. I watch the whole thing. One of my best friends in the world is Bob Roll, who's a commentator, you know, for American cycling. And I enjoy listening to him call the race. And uh, another friend of mine, uh, Christian Vandeveld is, is on that call as well. And so I, I will watch it. My favorite part of the race is not the mountains. My favorite part is the sprint finishes, the, the stuff that a lot of American viewers, even cycling fans, don't even watch. I like the flat stages and the sprint finishes because those are, that's playing chess, you know? The mountain stages, that's pure physical talent. That's watching the Boston Marathon and, and you know, that, that sort of thing. Like, yes, there's strategy and there's a, a lot going on but it's very straightforward. The flat stages and the big sprint finishes, that's chess with boxing gloves on, you know, in full oxygen deficit. You can't breathe. You might not be, even be able to see it for, for moments at a time. And you're racing a bike at 40 plus miles an hour around a bunch of other idiots that are all trying to kill each other. You know, I'm, I'm, I love that part of it. I really, really do. I like strategy involved mm -hmm. in things. And, it, and it's so much in any sport, I think that we can overcome, you know, as I've continued to age, right. You, you think of, I remember when I was a kid playing basketball with guys that at the time seemed old, they might've been in their forties. Like I am now being able to have experience and knowledge and be strategic and efficient with what we do has become so compelling to me in any sport. It, it beats that brute strength idea that we have of athletics. Sometimes let's move on from cycling a bit. I know that when you return back to the U S you, you know, tried to continue with road cycling in the U.S. for a few years, and there was mountain biking. Like, you continued to be involved in the sport in some way or another. But then there was, I think, a 10-year hiatus or so. Even just the book. I said uh, your first book, A Dog in a Hat, was a 2008 um, print date. There were a good number of years where before you got back into that story. And I'm just kind of curious what was going on during the hiatus, what was going on 
in your decision to write a book and all those years later, I mean, what we're talking 15 plus years later, you've already said here that, oh, my, my memories of this are, are crystal clear. Like they're, they're detailed, but I just wonder what it was like to then reimmerse yourself in it for the purpose of sharing that book with us too. The, the book, you know, I never in a million years thought that I would be an author, you know, or, or, or would have, you know, my name as, as the writer of a, of a book of any sort, you know, um, it wasn't something I set out to do. It was put it this way. When I moved back to the United States, I, I was doing a, basically the biggest race that the United States had at the time, which was in, in Philadelphia. And there was a New York times reporter who found me somehow and was curious and asked if he could, you know, have a few minutes, right? Um, we went up to my hotel room and, you know, he had his tape recorder with him. Um, we filled up four tapes, right? And he wrote something that you, I mean, something of the length that you would see in the New York Times, you know, in a special edition or, a or, you know, Vanity Fair or something like that. I've, I mean, it was a huge piece, 10,000 plus words. Wow. And he pitched it to one of the prevalent cycling magazines at the time. And the editor of the book at that time said, you know, we will never, we will never write a story about a domestique. We'll never write a story about one of these helper riders, you know, who it's champions only. We're, you know, none of this other crap. We're not interested. And it was at that moment in time that I just figured, okay, well, I'm, I'm kind of done with this, you know, like nobody's going to ever be interested in this, in this story. And it was the how the book came about was just very, you know, kind of accidental. Um, and I, and I wrote the book. Um, and it was probably a good thing in, in retrospect, because when the, the deal to write the book came up, I didn't care anymore. You know, like I didn't care who I burned. I wasn't trying to, <laughs> I wasn't trying to go back in the sport, like none of that. So, and it not like I'm throwing mud in the book, but I, but I definitely didn't pull punches I probably would have pulled if I was trying to, you know, stay in the sport. Well, you you kept it to the truth. It was my feel of it. Like it, there are certain there's a certain level of truth with uh -huh. which we speak. Otherwise, it just seems like you're not credible. Correct. Because you're not even willing to say the basic truths. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there was no mudslinging, no trying to take people down. It's yeah. just here's the name of the person, and that's what it is. I mean, these yeah. are the facts as I understand them. The truth yep. as I understand them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah. It, you know, it's very, you know, riders of my, you know, of sort of the way that I did it, my job description as a, as a professional cyclist, we don't retire. We just don't ride anymore. There's a day where you just don't ride anymore. Um, there's no fanfare to it. And that was very much, you know, I was, I, as you mentioned, I was, I was racing road bikes in Europe, came back to the States, raced road bikes a little bit more. And then the money was really going into mountain biking. And I thought that that was kind of cool to me that it was, that was kind of more American version of uh, cycling, um, than road, road racing. So I, you know, gave that a shot, raced mountain bikes for four years and then just kind of hung it up. Right. And then after that, I got very far away from bikes. I just, you know, I raced, decided I would start racing motorcycles again. And I shot long range, you know, rifle competition and then flew airplanes and, you know, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> 
I don't like to sit still, right? So did all this kind of stuff and really never thought I would ever, you know, do anything related to cycling again. I, I just didn't think it was in the cards. And then that, you know, this opportunity to write the book came up and jumped on it kind of. You were also then a magazine writer, an editor at some point in here. And I'm trying to piece together this idea of many years of hiatus in what you were doing in your life then, the book, which you said you never in a million years thought you would be the author of a book, and you have written more than one. When did the magazine part come in there? And, and maybe what else were you doing during the hi- hiatus? How did just how did life come together once you stopped writing one day in Europe and and here in, in, on mountain bikes? I, I, I think I was pretty lucky. You know, I don't think there's very many professional athletes of, of in any sort of sports discipline that do retirement well, right? Um, they, they don't teach that class in school, you know, from giving your everything, your every waking moment to a certain, you know, sport, craft, whatever it is, and then one day it's just done, you know? And I mean, that that is that is your being, and now it's not there anymore, you know what I mean? And um, But I was pretty lucky because I got, I had the opportunity to, um, basically fall right into a career, I guess, working sort of cycling adjacent. I worked for a, an Italian bicycle clothing company. <clears throat> and it, again, it was one of those things that just accidentally fell in my lap. I spent eight years from the time I retired from racing. I, I spent eight years doing that, working for this company called Castelli. And I stopped riding and racing bicycles because I just, I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like at the top level. And I wasn't going to have the time to dedicate to that feeling anymore. How old were you then? I was uh, 32, I think, when I quit. I mean, I turned pro when I was 20. So I had a reasonably long career. Yeah, so I, 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 I quit racing. And it's funny, like, I wouldn't get a massage. You know, my, my boss used to like as a gift every once in a while would um, buy us massage, you know, arrange to have massage for us at, at the at the office. And I wouldn't even let the massage therapist touch me because I knew what it felt like because I got massage almost every day when I was a professional cyclist. My legs didn't feel like that anymore. You know, the, the muscle structure wasn't the same. The tension wasn't the same. The, the need for it was, you know, it was like this was a fun little thing to have versus I need this so that I can race tomorrow. And I and I desperately just needed to put the bike away for a while. So you didn't ride at all? For I while. didn't ride at all for a long time. How, um, how long? Do you have any idea? Are we talking, are we you talking know, it would eight come in, years, 10 years? <clears throat> it would come in fits and starts, right? I would I would um, not – I mean, I, put, I would not put on sp- cycling-specific clothing and go ride a bicycle – I mean that was an easy, that was an easy eight to ten years. You um, were working for a company that was still in the cycling world, though. So this is interesting that you obviously you would have had your your street cred as a, as a rider, um, a cyclist, and all these things beforehand. But then to not be part of it and not riding, did that feel? This this is a horrible way to describe it, but the word coming to mind is like second class. Like, did you feel like oh, I'm not I'm not the cyclist anymore? That this is for I'm not that guy. Did it feel like a fall, or did it feel natural to you that yeah we're 
you know, you said retirement, you know, we don't know how to do it well, but like, was it, were you, were you happy? No, I wasn't. I was not happy at all. I was, uh, I, <clears throat> excuse me. I, um, I think that as a cyclist at, you know, having spent, I don't know, five to 10 hours a day wearing the clothing, sitting on the bike, you know, riding all over the world, that, that kind of thing. I was uniquely qualified to aid in the production and the marketing and the selling of cycling specific clothing. So I, so I was very fortunate to be able to fall into something that I just happened to be qualified for. It wasn't my life's work, my, my life's passion. I, I wasn't that motivated by it. I'm unfortunately, I'm not, and I, really mean this unfortunately i'm not motivated by money that that much so the money was good and i could have made a lot more you know and i could have done those things to me it was about making a better product or making and and this is going to sound horrible i i kind of didn't care about our customers what i cared about (laughs) what i cared about were the people that were like me you know i cared about the people that would that would see that you know, if it was a piece of clothing that I designed, that there was something very specific to the needs of a pro cyclist, right? Versus the thing that's going to make the masses happy, right? So yeah, that part was kind of enjoyable, but for the most part, yeah, I was pretty miserable. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't in it. I wasn't in the know anymore. You know, I was, I was watching the, you know, the races on TV, at least the ones we could watch and seeing these friends and old teammates of mine, you know, over there either still racing or behind the wheel of the team car. And here I was, you know, a schmuck kind of, so to speak, just doing a job um, that I, 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 I tried hard at, but I kind of didn't care about it at the same time. So yeah, it was rough and it was very rough. And, you know, Hence, all of these side projects, they learning how to fly airplanes and shoot guns and, you know, all kinds of other things just to keep my mind in a, in a le- constantly learning or competition mindset. Is that trying to search for just, you know, you, you raced your first road race on a bicycle when you were young and you won and you're like, this is a thing for mm-hmm. me. Like, I actually have something I'm potentially amazing at. Was the rest of this stuff going to magazines and things, which I don't know how that came to be yet, but was that all kind of a search for what is my next thing that I'm potentially amazing at, at least enough that I can have the rest of my life? Because I retired from this sport in my early 30s. I need to find something that is satisfying, and I'm not always looking backward. It's Yeah, it's always always been a search, you know, to this day. It's a search to to find that thing, right? That, that thing that, um, so completely, uh, enthralls your mind, you know, um, and makes the body feel a certain way. Um, you know, I, I got into shooting, shooting guns and it was like, oh, here's this thing that I can do that actually gives me the same, like I would go shoot a 20, you know, each rifle matches typically, um, 20 shots, right? So I lay down on the line, you wear all the weird clothing, you get all slung up, it's prone position stuff, open sights, I didn't shoot scopes, 
and you, you, you lay down and it's full concentration. I mean, the world could be ending around me. I am in that place staring at that target, you know, 600 yards downrange or a thousand yards downrange. Um, and I would get up off the line after one of those matches. It was exactly the same feeling to me as I had after I had finished a classic in, you know, Northern Europe. Of course, my legs didn't hurt, but I was absolutely emotionally and to a great extent physically depleted. You know, I was worked over. Um, I'd usually get up off the line. I'd be sweating. And um, and then when I flew airplanes, that was that that was a similar thing. You know, it's like it f- took full dedication and full concentration to get that, you know, to get that done, to get those licenses. And I flew aerobatics. So, you know, you add a competition. Ele- I mean, I didn't fly it competitively, but you add a high performance um, characteristic or component onto that. It's, yeah, I've always looked to, to, um, to find that thing that will satisfy that, whatever it is in my brain that needs to be satisfied. The magazine editorship was, was a, a different thing. I, it was very enjoyable. It was a very learning uh, experience. It just, again, it was one of those things that fell into place. I had no magazine experience. I wrote a book. And, um, so that came after the book. It wasn't mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. So you had you had no intentions of being a writer until the book thing came about. And, you know, it was I was good at it in school, but it wasn't that you thing. were good at it in your first go here with the mm-hmm, book. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I, I mean, this might not mean anything to you or to anyone else, but I am somewhat particular about writing. As mm-hmm. a writer, I find most writing to not be up to what I would like it to be as a writer or reader, (laughs) right? So that was one of the first things when when I started reading that book of yours, and I'm like, this is good writing. I appreciate the writing. And then when I found out that you had worked at magazines, I thought, well, okay, the natural progression here was you were in magazines first and then decided to write a book. So there was some path to that. To find out it was reversed, that's incredible to me. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a very weird experience. Like, um, like I said, I, in school, um, my, my path, my, my path that I had for myself when I came to this tough realization that I was not going to be the next greatest catcher of all times in <laughs> Major League Baseball because I'm too small. Now, what I wanted to be was an English teacher. I want to be a high school English teacher. I wanted to teach literature. And I didn't end up doing that, obviously. But the writing part of it, I, I, I enjoyed writing and I enjoyed storytelling. I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff that I would, that I, I mean, I'm a bartender at this point and I, and I, I do it for the stories. Honestly, that's why I do it. Well, and, and you, you own the bar. Yeah. And I, I don't drink personally. And yet I'm hanging out with people in a bar all the time because their stories are fascinating to me. I mean, even their stupid stories, you know, that they're, that they're, you know, that they've already told you three times because they've been at your bar too long. Like, I love stories. Anyway, yeah, so I wrote, wrote a book because it was, it just plopped itself in my lap, kind of. And that led to magazine work. And that led to magazine work. And, you know, I started a magazine when I was at the magazine group I were, where I was hired, on top of the one that I was hired to be the editor of. And then kind of when we, long story, but we, my wife and I moved away from Southern California um, for her sort of dream job. And I gave up the magazine 
work for that, but was still involved in the magazine and then went on to do a bunch of other kind of writing, storytelling type stuff. Did a lot with, um, you know, short video things within the mountain bike community. I mean, it, it, it it's all kind of related to me, just stories, right? And to to your point, so much so much writing, you, you can you can see it when the person who's doing the writing is trying to be a writer, and that usually sucks when they're when they try and do that. You know, if they just tell tell you a good story, in their own words, the writing kind of follows, right? I mean, obviously that it's not quite that simple, but yeah, the, the stories have always been the important part. I want to read a quote from something that you wrote related to the shooting, the competitive long-range rifle shooting. You said, I needed another competitive outlet after hanging up the bike. I became a competitive long-range rifle shooter for five years, getting the highest ranking the National Rifle Association offers. Basically, if you're standing 600 yards away from me, you wouldn't survive. No scope. At 1,000 yards, you'd have a 3% chance of survival. I wonder how you came to this. I wonder if, well, was your dad still around? Did he know of this? piece of your life and if so you know what that might have done in the relationship if he had any any concept of it but basically his time in the marines he would have been learning some similar skills marines tend to target shoot at longer distances than any of the other branches i was in the army we stopped at 300 yards distance no scope i can't imagine doing it 600 and a thousand like you did i know i just laid a lot at your feet there but this idea of i mean this is this is a thing. In five years, it kept your attention. You described the way you felt in the competitive, which I, the idea that it compares to cycling is is fascinating as well because I would not have guessed that. It was. Um, it, it's. I. I actually it, never really thought about that with you know it, if I had been able to do that with my dad, it, that would have been a, a joy. My dad was an amazing shot. He he hated guns. They had no purpose for him other than a weapon to be used for hunting if you were actually going to hunt for food and or if you were serving in the military or you know as a police officer or something they were never in our house they wasn't a thing that we talked about when um i was probably 14 years 13 or 14 years old and we were living in southern california we were in the, the mojave desert hanging out with a lot of the L.A. City, um, I think there were a few L.A. County firefighters that rode motorcycles with us, right? And one of the guys got just had bought himself a brand new pistol, right? Uh, I don't remember the brand, but it was a 1911-45. And he, you know, he's kind of showing it around, showing, you know, showing it off and everything. And the all the, the all of the dads, so to speak, were you know, we're shooting it. They had a bunch of wine jugs and other, you know, garbage that they were blasting away. And they were trying to get my dad to come and shoot it with him. And he said, no, nah, I'm good. Very nonchalant, you know, and just, they kept, the peer pressure kept at him for so long. Finally, he was just like, all right, sure, whatever. And I watched him, they handed him the pistol and he took three shots. And the first shot, he blew the cap off the wine bottle at you know, about 30 feet, something like that. It wasn't a super long shot, but it wasn't, <laughs> but it wasn't, you know, right next to him either. Blew the cap off of it. Then he took the neck and then he took the bottle and then he 
flip the gun around and handed it back to the guy. And that's a nice pistol. And it, <laughs> I mean, that was kind of it, you know? So there are parts of me where I kind of wish that my dad could have seen me shoot. Had you ever seen him shoot like that before? No. Nope. Was, was that a, so that was a surprise? That was all I ever saw. That's the only time I ever saw a gun in the man's hands. That one time, you know, he, he, he grew up hunting, but didn't enjoy it. You know, just all those things. He just, that wasn't his, his, his bag. He just happened to be good at it. How did you come to it then? And, and why, you know, how, because again, I would not think of lying in the prone position, shooting rifles at a target that I'm thinking, this is my competitive outlet. This is what's going to come into my life as the new cycling adrenaline. You know, how did you decide and come to this experience or, or guns at all? You know, it just fell in my lap. It's one of those things. It just kind of showed up one day. I had a friend that I raised. I think we have a theme here. Yeah. Way, just <laughs> of, of how life and you have come together. Yeah. I had a friend that he raced bicycles when he was younger. You know, he didn't uh, pursue it as a career and, and, and really kind of gave up on it after, you know, way earlier than I did. But he started shooting rifles, you know, and, and I think I think some of the impetus for that was uh, he'd read the book Marine Sniper about Carlos Hathcock and, you know, decided that he wanted to pursue it as a competition outlet and he was doing a lot of small small bore competition and then really to, to fulfill that sort of, I guess, in his case, maybe a little bit of a sniper's fantasy, you know, he went and shot some long range matches and enjoyed it. And when I quit racing, you know, he and I started hanging out together a little bit and he he's like, you got to come out to one of these matches. I'll loan you a gun, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's really fun. You got to try it out. And I mean, I was instantly hooked, just instantly hooked. I thought the people were really fascinating, the people who did it. I mean, at the time, we're talking a lot of, about a lot of airline pilots, um, master machinists. There was a, a lot of other people that were, you know, didn't fall in those fields, but characters, real, real, really interesting characters. And, you know, not to bring politics in it too much, but, but that was at a time, too, where the politics was a, not quite as polarizing, too. So... You know, I was this weirdo, skinny bike racer guy with long hair, and I was shooting with, you know, former, you know, Marine Corps rifle team people, a circuit court judge, the the uh, senior 757 pilot for Northwest Airlines, you know, like the, those kinds of folks. It was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. Okay. So thinking about, you know, using the word politics, obviously in guns in this country, there there's a, a thing with this. Of course, we have issues with mass shootings and all these sorts of things. So I think the reason, you know, the idea that guns are a, well, no pun intended, but a trigger point for emotions and feelings and politics, no matter where you are in the political views of the world, I've thought it an interesting question in general. Well, what is it that draws people to shooting? Now, I have my own experience with it. I shot trap and skeet as a college age army uh, after college with my dad a little bit. Obviously, I shot various weapons in, in the Army and was training on those things. I've not shot much in the last 20 years. And so I've I've lost kind of contact with that trigger and with that feeling and being like, why, why would I want to do this? Why is this a pastime? Why is this a competition thing? Do you have a sense of what it is about shooting that might help people who are not gun enthusiasts understand there's a real draw to this that isn't necessarily about protection or shooting people or even hunting. Like what, what is it that would draw a competition shooter? Who's not necessarily even a hunter. I just, to, to me that the 
I mean, the fascination with it to me was that, okay, here I am laying down on the ground with this thing in my hand. And when I, you know, essentially twitch my index finger on my right hand, I'm going to send a projectile downrange at a, roughly a half a mile, right? A thousand yards and try and hit a target that's the size of a, you know, small paper plate, right? And any one, you know, any any bit of wind is going to affect that. And the heat of the day is going to affect that. And how I'm feeling and how I'm actually slung up, my position, that's going to affect it. And can I do that over and over and over and over again in a situation where there's a lot of other people that are trying to do exactly the same thing. That was the fascination to me. It was, it was the, the, I don't know, the physics of it, the mechanics of it, and the, and the, can I trick my brain into allowing me to do this aspect of it? I've never hunted, not a day in my life. I fish, but I never hunted. I don't have any, you know, that, and that's not a statement. That's just, no, I, 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 I just have never done it. I never have either. I mean, it just, just is. Yeah. And, so there, there was always people would ask me when I was doing it. Well, why, why do you waste your time doing that if you don't hunt? Well, you know, and I, would, I don't know. Why do you do so many things? But again, it was just it was massively enjoyable to me. But thinking that's the way my brain works. You know, I, I've never been much of an explorer. Um, I've gone to many places, but like to me, it's can I do th- something? over and over and over again and can each each incident be better than the last one you know base that that's where my my life and my passions have gone so this feels counterintuitive but i think what we're describe what we're talking about here are tools of violence that's the way we often think of them mm-hmm. whether that's for use against animals use against other people whatever it is but what you're describing is actually a meditative type practice yeah, and I've always been hesitant to term it that way. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, gun culture is not exactly, <laughs> um, you know, into meditation most of the time, right? So, so do you disagree that it's in, meditative? Yeah, in terms of like the focus and the things you're talking about, it, it's bringing you to a, a place of, of central focus in a way you're having to control your breath and, and work with your mind, all of these aspects that also factor into things like meditation. It's 100% a- accurate. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's the most Zen thing I've ever done in my life, you know? That's why I said counterintuitive. It is very counterintuitive. I mean, the, the machinery of it is, is, was interesting to me. The, you know, the, the, the hardware, the gun itself was interesting to me as well. But again, always as a tool, you know, my bicycles have always just been tools to me. I don't celebrate them, you know, and that you don't, people love to ask me about bike stuff, you know, and, and I can do it in, in an educational sense, but in, in terms of my own personal interest in them, um, it, it's a tool, it's a hammer, you know, some hammers are prettier than others, you know, and, and more, more complex, I guess, but, but I think it's they, been but, described as the noblest invention. Is that, is that, Am I getting the word on that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it has been. Yeah, I've, I can't remember who's credited with that quote, but yes. Um, it's such a simple tool, relatively mm-hmm. speaking, in terms of transportation, mm-hmm. and and it's human-powered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a giant leap, but it, 
but a rifle is pretty simple thing as well, you know? Um, and it was, it, I don't know. It just, from, from the, from the gun standpoint, it's, it's a very weird, it's a very weird one because I have never really fit, fit in that mold, you know, I guess, at least from outward appearance, but, um, anything in my life to, to give me that, that thing in the brain that, you know, it's, it's, itch that needs to be satiated somehow. <laughs> Do you meditate? No. Having brought that up, have you ever? Is that anything you've I ever tried, or practiced? I have tried. Um, the way that my brain works, the it, I can't. I just can't. I, I start to crawl out of my skin if I if I try to do anything. I mean, basically anything spiritual. If I am trying to do that, it's not going to work. I am going to lose my mind. Is it a matter of you feel like you can't quiet your mind in the way that you think you should? Yeah. So here's an interesting thing. I've talked with two people on this podcast. Uh, Jenny Davis is a Buddhist practitioner. Uh, Eric Lee is is someone who has, you know, followed his spiritual practices, including meditation, for thirty plus years. And I talked about this with both of them. This idea that people who have tried meditation and they say, "I just can't do it," because the thoughts they, they're just so intrusive. They keep coming. I, I guess I'm just no good at it. Jenny had an interesting way of looking at this, which I don't know if I had thought of until then, and that is that that might exactly be what you're after is simply that awareness, right? Someone whose thoughts keep intruding, initially you're going to have a lot of those thoughts, and by recognizing that, Mm -hmm. that's the first step, I think is fair to say. So then over time, we get better at setting those thoughts aside, because no matter how great we get at meditating, and I, I have meditated for six, five, six, seven years, no matter what the practice is and and how consistent we are with it, there's always those thoughts that come in. So I'm not in any way trying to urge you to go (laughs) to try to go back and try this again as if, oh, now here's, I just gave you the the magic key. Um, But it's an interesting thing to talk with someone from that other side of it. And I don't know, in my own mind, I'm kind of matching up that, I mean, I feel like you still achieved it in your own way with with shooting rifles. A, a, a very good friend of mine used to um, Alan Piper is the guy's name. And for anyone that's watched the Tour de France in the last few years, Tadej Pogacar, who won not last year but the previous two years, um, Alan was his. Alan found him. My friend Alan discovered this guy, and really, really, you know, um, not to take away from the natural ability of the athlete, but without my friend Alan, there might not be a Tour de France champion, Tadej Pogacar, but anyway. He was, a, he was a teammate of yours, wasn't he? Yeah, Alan, As a, yes. When you both were cycling together. Yep, yep. Um, wonderful human um, and very spiritual and very into, but he, I, I will never forget, he, constantly he would say that, you know, that there's many different ways to the top of the mountain. Mm. It's as long as you're trying to get to the top of the mountain, that's the important part. Whether you get there or not, it's the trying to get to the top of the mountain that was important, and and so to you, to your point, I I always think sometimes that the I have found a somewhat meditative state, or that via these various different avenues, I think the end result is kind of the same, just that the pathway is is a little bit different, and. And many times the pathway that I've chosen is painful, <laughs> mm. <laughs> physically painful. <laughs> <laughs> what are important things that I was going to ask you what cycling maybe brought to your life, but 
you know, that was many years ago. And there are these other experiences. I mean, the, I mean, would you say acrobatic flight, you know, mm-hmm. p- flying of plane, these different things you've done, which I'm sure we could go into that for a while too, but I am going to try to kind of wind this toward our, our, our end here for today. But in general, what from any of these experiences do you think have been just really key lessons that, that you carry with you as, wow, I learned this about life because of cycling or because of, you know, being a pilot or whatever? I would, I guess the, the, I, I don't even know how to answer that other than. <clears throat> I might not have asked it very well. No, no. Um, trying to, trying to be articulate here instead of just a, you know, stuttering fool. I think that, um, the biggest thing that my life in cycling and shooting and motorcycles and airplanes and, you know, all the, these various different things. I've told a lot of people this about my relationship with my, with my dad. One of the greatest things that my dad did for me was that he died when he was way too young. And I don't mean that in the literal sense, because uh, I would love to have him here. But he was very much of sort of a generation and a mindset where things have to be a certain way and you work toward an end and the work is not important. The end is important, right? For him, for his, you know, the way that he thought about things. And when he died, that end was never achieved. He never experienced the end and he never experienced a sort of retirement where he might be able to go explore things. He, he never got any of that stuff. So to me, the, the, the end is not important. It's truly not important. It's, it's the, you know, don't want to sound like a hippie here, but like the, the journey, you know, it's, it's the experiences along the way that create that amazing story tapestry that, you know, when you're, can't see out of one eye and you can't walk and you, you know, go to the bathroom 40 times a night kind of a thing. The, the stories that you have are the, the ultimately the thing that, you know, are important because as they say, you know, you can't take it with you. And nobody remembers that my dad was a good shot other than me, you know, and things, things like that. So I've always just, tried to just kind of take it as it comes, right? And then I think the cycling has given me that. My dad gave me a, a viewpoint, I guess. My mom was always just sort of that, you know, very. she was always supportive of anything that we, you know, me or my brothers did. So the, the cycling uh, allowed me to experience a world I wouldn't have otherwise experienced, introduced me to people who are have been the most fascinating people in my life. The, the shooting gave me a perspective on things that I might not otherwise have flying airplanes. Well, I, I, I mean, that's, um, my parents would, my, you know, my mom would say that, that, uh, I, I've been that, I was that little kid that was pointing up at airplanes in the sky from the, you know, that, those were some of my first actions and everything else along the way, you know, it's been a, a way to amass experiences and it's kind of it, I guess, really. I, I, 
made I've always made a lot of mistakes, but I wouldn't change it. I won't ask you know what you think might still be ahead for stories because it just again we, it sounds like we have a theme here that when opportunities present themselves, you're willing to say yes, you're willing to try something different, do something different. You own a bar and a bike shop now. Who knows what what lies out there over the next 30, 40 years, right? Who knows? We'll find out. It's, uh, you know, yeah, we'll find out. I appreciate your time, Joe, and all the insights, all the stories, you know, that, that you've shared here today. So thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you very much. All right, that was Joe Park. If our conversation here today sparked curiosity for you, you can learn more in this episode's show notes at wearechafee.org. If you have comments or know someone in Chafee County, Colorado, who I should consider talking with on the podcast, you can email us at info at wearechafee.org. We invite you to rate and review the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you use with that functionality. And we invite you to tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell your family about the Looking Upstream podcast. Help us keep growing this community and connection through conversation. Once again, I'm Adam Williams, host, producer, and photographer. John Prey is engineer and producer. Thank you to KHIN 106.9 FM, our community radio partner in Salida, Colorado, and to Heather Gorby for graphic and web design, to Andrea Carlstrom, director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment, and to Lisa Martin, community advocacy coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority. It's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at wearechafee. Lastly, thank you for listening. And remember, as we say here at We Are Chafee, be human, share stories. Share stories, make change.